Hi, this is Todd Zaki Warfel, and I'm here on the Progression Podcast with Johnny Birch. Looking forward to where this goes. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Progression Podcast. In this episode, I'm talking to Todd Zaki Warfel, a design leader, a leadership coach, and lifelong learner. Todd recently released a survey of over 800 design teams globally with a focus on career growth and team health. We dive into his findings, getting through everything from hiring to attrition and the relative importance of different factors in someone's decision to leave a company. We also dig into some of the stats around progression frameworks, how many companies have them, and when should you start considering one for your team. Um, All the links to this episode are in the show notes, and I strongly recommend some follow-up reading. His report is really in-depth and interesting, and he's also done various talks around this subject, so uh, lots to dig into if you Google Todd Zaki Warfel afterwards or during. If you want to join the progression waitlist, you can do so at progressionapp.com. Starting to get people on there now. But in the meantime, on with the pod. Hi, Todd. Hey, Johnny. How you doing? Yeah, good. Good. I'm uh, really excited to have you on the podcast this week. We have been chatting about, well, all sorts of things to do with kind of design skills and, and uh, everything in between for a little while. So um, really Good to get some of this uh, in front of more people so that it's not just us two on, on uh, opposite ends of a Skype call across the Atlantic and actually uh, everyone can have a listen. First of all, uh, for those that don't know you and for for people that haven't been following your work, could you give kind of a potted history of who you are and your kind of journey to get to this point and what you're kind of up to at the moment? Sure. Uh, oh, that's a good one. Um, yeah. So my, my journey is, uh, storied, I guess you could say (laughs) kind of an unorthodox approach to get here. Uh, so now I do kind of leadership and transformation coaching, uh, working with individuals and teams typically in some season of transition or transformation. Um, you know, they're going through a growth stage, you know, maybe they've paid one of the big five consultancy companies to come in and tell them they need to go through digital transformation and, um, and so the work that I do is with the leaders and the teams, um, really kind of around performance coaching, if you will, and, and kind of navigating that sea of uh, transformation from where they're at today to where they are you know, tomorrow. Um, how I got here is uh, interesting, I guess. Um, it's not something I would have thought I would be doing, um, although in hindsight, um, I guess it all kind of makes sense. My undergrad is actually, I have a, a dual undergrad in cognitive psychology and English creative writing. Uh, but then I studied graphic design. And so the, the three of those, in hindsight, I guess, kind of, you know, are a perfect blend for this work. <laughs> um, <laughs> but when I graduated school, if you imagine, you know, a couple decades ago, those were two, I'm sorry, three completely unrelated fields. Um, you know, the field of kind of product, digital product design wasn't even around then. So I thought I was going to be an art director, um, you know, making ads in, in magazines and stuff. Obviously, I'm not doing that today. But uh, so, it, you know, in, in hindsight, I guess it was serendipitous. Um, I've been really, you know, blessed to, to have leadership roles at small companies and large companies. Some of them people have heard of, like you know, Twitter, Cisco, Workday. Um, and in each of those roles, I, I was actually brought in in kind of that season of, of change. Um, and so I've not only coached people through these seasons, but I've, you know, and, and gotten formalized training. So I've gotten, you know, I've gotten uh, two certifications. So one's a coaching certification, another one's a, a master coach certification uh, in Enneagram work. Um, but not only gone through formal training, but I've actually like walked through 
this season of transition, uh, scaling teams from five to 28, um, you know, five to 18, 28 to 60. And then probably the most significant one was uh, scaling a team from 40 to over 106 months. So learned a lot uh, mm. going through that personally. And, uh, and now I get to kind of, you know, coach teams going through that. And as I, I coach teams and leaders going through that, I, I get to learn even more. So uh, it's probably the most rewarding work of, of my life. Awesome. Um, well, I mean, we got a load of stuff that <laughs> I told you we were going to talk about, but I just actually want to touch on something that you said there around uh, a season of change, because the last podcast, uh, the, the episode before this, which actually, as we're speaking, isn't yet live. So you've had no prep. Um, but I, I was talking to uh, Sana, Sana Rao, uh, who was talking about a time at Deliveroo at the moment, which is a season of change. And, um, you know, to, to put it into context, that's a design team of uh, 40, 40 or 50 or some, something like that. Um, but, you know, a, a company transforming from a startup or scale up into a business uh, that, you know, has to be more accountable and... and um, think more about profit and being a real business rather than kind of uh, throwing things at the wall and seeing if they stick. So that requires a different mindset from the people that she's working with. And I wonder if there's something that you can bring to this kind of ongoing conversation around how do you turn a group of designers or anyone who is used to working in one way and helping them to think in a new way as a company changes? Mm, yeah, oh, man, there's so much there. Um, well, let me, let me start probably with just like at the organizational level um, and, and some kind of uh, typical scenarios that you'll see. Um, there's a, a really good model out there called the, the um, Kubler-Ross change curve. Um, and you can just Google it. There's a graphic for it. Uh, but it's, sadly, it's like the 12 stages of depression. Um, you, can, you, can, you can look at the curve, actually, and you can see kind of, if you can identify where your team is now, the Kubler-Ross kind of change curve basically shows you a predictable model for like what, what comes next, what stage, what season, like, you know, what are the challenges that are going to come next? So the nice thing is that um, this model has been proven. There's lots of science behind it. And so if you follow that model and you can figure out where your team is, you can kind of, you know, see around the corner and plan for what's going to come next. Uh, sadly, a lot of companies don't do this. And so they just try and like figure it out along the way. Uh, but you don't have to do that. You can actually like, you know, go look at this model. <laughs> it, it, it will literally predict kind of like, okay, this is what's coming next. So when you're going through those seasons of change and you're, you know, helping a, an organization, navigate those waters uh you can go look at this model and go oh well uh this is what we need to be prepared for next so here's the mindset i need to help with the team maybe here are the resources we need to kind of put in place the type of training we need to develop and that type of thing um now setting that aside for a second there are some fairly predictable stages that you'll find uh around growth sizes for companies and then these mm -hmm. do kind of apply to an org as well um, and, I, and I'm honestly, I'm not exactly sure why these are the numbers, but uh, there's a predictable pattern again that you'll see. And if you talk to anybody in HR, or like, you know, uh, v, I've talked to some VC firms and they say the same, they start, we start laughing. We have this conversation like, oh yeah, like when we look at a company at this size, this is what we're looking for, right? So there's right. the sub 50 group and literally it's like 49 and below mm. um, where it's kind of all hands on deck, right? Everybody kind of pitches in, it's everybody's job um, and there is no kind of like, you know, it's almost like there's no delegation because everybody's kind of doing it. For some reason, 
when you hit the 50 person mark, um, now you actually have to put in some proper intentional um, policies, right? So, cause you always get one person that takes advantage of the, we don't really keep track of vacation policy stuff, right? <laughs> um, it's, 50 is like the magic number. Um, and so below that, there's a certain kind of culture that just exists, right? Uh, once you hit 50, from 50 to like the 150 to 250 mark, um, again, you're, you're, you, you know, it kind of stabilizes, um, you know, below mm -hmm. 50, you can usually have like, you know, one layer or two layers. You might need, you know, some, some formal leadership, but you know, it's, it, uh, it can be a little more implied, right? Almost. But once you hit 50, it's like, oh, we actually have to formally put in, you know, like a middle layer of management because we have to scale, right? And this all comes down mm -hmm. to being able to, to scale because you can't operate a, not successfully anyway, you can't operate a 500 or 1500 person company the way you did at 50. It just, it just right. doesn't work. Right. People try. And then they realize, you know, 10 years later why the whole thing's falling apart. So, you know, it's kind of like sub 50 and then it's like 50 to 250 is like a range. And then, you know, that can, that'll kind of hold true until you get to like a thousand to 1500 and then another shift will happen. Right. Culturally, yeah. organizationally. Um, and that'll hold true until you get to a couple thousand. Basically once you're above like 5,000 that, you know, the things that you'll see at, 5,000 size companies, 10,000, 25, it's all the same. It's just kind of right. economies of scale, right? But there are some kind of predictable, again, size-wise, you can look at and go, oh, if we're, if we're getting ready, if we're on the trajectory to hit, you know, this next kind of mark, let's get prepared for it. Now, if you bring yeah. that down to like design orgs, um, you'll see a similar thing, right? Now, the number's a little smaller, kind of like, you know, one to five, it's pretty manageable. You may not even need some formal leadership. Um, it's a good thing to have, but you know, you can maybe get by without it. But once you kind of hit like that six to 15 mark, um, you need to have a design manager in there. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, then things start to, you know, kind of go sideways fairly quickly. And so then, you know, then, you know, 25 to 50 is kind of another mark. Um, 25, well, almost basically 25 to about a, around a hundred. Once you hit like a hundred to 150, again, you hit kind of like, a, you know, you've hit like another threshold and you just start looking at, oh, well, now we need kind of like, you know, multiple executives to kind of, and we got to, you know, take that 100 to 150 group and kind of split it down to groups of 50, you know, right. type of thing. So um, there are definitely some economies of, of scale again with you get, when you get within a specific organization um, where it's just, it's more challenging, you know, and you can't, you can't run a 50 person design team the way you did a five person design team. Now then you layer mm -hmm. in geographic differences. That's a whole nother bucket, right? So when you think about establishing <laughs> culture, um, you know, it's, it's good to kind of institute some common values, like pillars of practice that you have, but you know, you're over in the UK, right? I'm on the West coast in California, uh, which is a completely different world than like the East coast of California right? Like the U S is more of like the entire European union. We've got like a, a bunch of like microscopic cultures in the U S. Um, and so you think about culturally just, you know, how the culture in the UK operates is a bit different than the culture in Northern California. And so, you know, putting in kind of a core set of values for your team and kind of, you know, pillars of practice are good. Mm -hmm. But when you're doing a kind of multinational team or a global team, you have to, allow each of those kind of local cultures to take those pillars of practice and values and then kind of put their own spin on it. 
you know, and so you yeah. can't expect the UK team to run exactly the way that the Northern California team does. It just doesn't work, right? It's more like, all right, yeah. let me give you ownership and autonomy over this. And as long as you're adhering to these values and kind of these pillars of practice, then take that and then locally, you know, kind of layer on your own cultural view and, and then kind of like build your, your practice around that, right? And so you've got to have some flexibility uh, inside that as you're scaling teams. Yeah, interesting. I mean, uh, it feels like geography and sheer numbers are both functions of or related to communication and just the ability to communicate across across whether it's distance or or, or different cultures or just sheer number of people. Um, so, but but we're going to get back into this in just a moment. But I want to give you an opportunity to give to give some context over the work that you've been doing over the last year or so you can correct me on on that date um <laughs> yeah which is this this uh this mega survey so yeah you've you've surveyed hundreds hundreds of people 800 odd uh survey responses um from uh hundreds of companies uh and 80 countries so what is this study <laughs> Um, well, let me, uh, to, to, to back up, um, it started probably close to five years ago. Um, and so about four years, four years, uh, prior to doing the survey, launching the survey, um, over the course of, of four years, you know, I had done a number of interviews. Um, and so some of these were, you know, one-on-ones with people, uh, that worked in my organization, some were with other industry leaders, you know, some were like, you know, having coffee with people. And I just started noticing, um, these common themes around, you know, career growth and leadership and, you know, how to build a culture and how to scale design teams. And, you know, they're just, they're the same conversations we have over and over and over again. Um, and there were some definite trends, right? And then there was, you know, a, a a bunch of stories that came out around like, you know, the millennial generation and the challenges with, you know, managing millennials and so on and so forth. Um, and so, you know, leading up to kind of launching this survey, I had a, a couple hundred uh, interviews under my belt. So a lot of, you know, kind of qualitative data. Um, but it was mostly within people of, you know, that were in my network, an extended network. And while that might be broad, you know, the researcher me is like, Hey, like, let's get some, some quant data in there too. And kind of, you know, you, you know, you know, kind of like a lot of, you know, kind of why things are happening, but let's see like the, how, like how, like how far does this reach? Right. Mm. So, um, I put together a survey and the survey was kind of informed by the qualitative data I had from these interviews, launched a survey, um, you know, uh, sent it out to my kind of direct network put it up on Twitter, LinkedIn, posted in a couple of Slack groups. Um, yeah. Six weeks later, I had like over 800 responses. Uh, and I was like, Oh my God. Uh, so yeah, I was, I was in this kind of paradox of uh, I'm really excited. There's a massive data set. And then I started digging into it and uh, I hate spreadsheets. Like, you know, part of my soul dies every time I touch one, <laughs> I spent like, you know, three months on a spreadsheet. Um, and, uh, but this, you know, but now we've got this like massive data set, you know, um, and it's, it's over 800 respondents. Um, I think it's like, it's, it's, a, it's around 300, 300 plus different companies. So it's global. Um, and yeah, it's like, they end up being like 82 different countries. 
Um, and so with that massive data set, I was able to kind of look through and find out all right, like what's going on with you know, how teams are organized and, you know, um, you know, how they're leveling individuals, kind of like makers, you know, ICs. Um, what about executive presence? Uh, what about, you know, career ladders? And that was actually one of the big things was, you know, these common conversations of developing your staff. Mm. Well, do you have a career ladder? Oh, no, man, we've been working on one for like 18 months. You know, haven't launched it yet. Like, well, okay. <laughs> you know, HR is breathing on my neck. And I know, I know we've been, but I just got so many other things I need to do, you know? And so it's yeah. kind of like not you know, on my mind, but we also, we've lost like 20% of our staff in the last two months. I'm like, well, <laughs> yeah. why is that? So part of it was trying to dig into more of, you know, um, what's the kind of, how present are career ladders? Um, what do, do people understand like what a career ladder is, what types of career ladders are out there? Do they have an impact at all on, you know, hiring and retention? Um, and then what about, you know, executive kind of leadership and, and the presence there? And so that's kind of like, you know, what I was digging into uh, with the survey. And uh, again, just due to the way that it was run and the size of it, we can slice it by um, industry. So it's about 24 different industries that are in there as well. Um, and also size of uh, the design organization. And so you can kind of look at it from two different angles, you know, like, all right, well, you know, uh, at, at what point do career ladders show up in the industries and what types, but then also like, is there a certain size that the team gets to where they're starting to show up? Now this doesn't say, um, the survey data doesn't really show us what you should be doing. It's more of like just what's there. And so on the backside of the, the report that I'm getting ready to, to kick out uh, pretty soon, is okay, well, you know, here's what the data said, but then also based on a bunch of the interviews I've done, you know, what are we finding are some good practices for, you know, uh, making a, a high performing team or developing like an effective team. And it's not necessarily what's in the data. Uh, there is some overlap, but it's kind of like, you know, the, the, the survey is just like, what's the state of what's going on? Okay, now that we know that, like, what could we be doing with it to get to like a healthier state? Right, exactly. And it, it definitely, uh, quant is often hard to directly pull uh, actions out of, but you can inform inform the opinion and, and um, get that data, that, that context of what other people have done. So I, I just I just wanted to, to clap. So this was a, a survey ostensibly for designers working in design teams for them to answer questions around the structure of the teams around them. Uh, or is it more focused on uh, leaders or is it or, or um, was it more focused on designers speaking about their own I suppose opinions of the quality of the design organizations they were in or, or more kind of factual this is what we have this is what we don't have sure good question uh, more the the latter factual right so uh, like Envision recently released a report you know they're called the, the new design frontier and it looks more at like the process like craft process like what tools are you using you know what tools are mm -hmm. present um and then um you know uh and then some kind of self-assessment on you know whether or not you think your team is having an impact um the study i did didn't look at that at all it was really more of like what's the state of design um from like a, a career trajectory standpoint and the presence of leadership and, and that type of thing so it's more of a factual like what is going on um, and, yeah. and to that point, you know, there's a, a famous statistic by a Gallup poll of, you know, 51% of employees are actively looking for new opportunities. Um, that's a theoretical statement, right? Like they're yeah. looking, that doesn't mean that they left, 
right? That just means that like, well, I'm, I know lots of people that are looking who aren't going anywhere, you know? Um, and so I actually want to look more like, you know, I, I'm more of a theory is interesting, but let's get to like the actual practice of what's really going on. And so for mm-hmm. example, um, I looked at that question and thought, well, that's, that's an interesting question to pose. But what I really want to know is like, Johnny, why did you leave your last job? Right. right. And so uh, the, the way that we frame the questions or the way that I frame the questions in the survey was more of, you know, why did you leave your last role? Not like, why would you leave this role? That's a theoretical question. I want to know, like, factually, why did you actually leave your last role? Well, it turns out 48% yeah. of the people left, like the, the number one uh, reason, 48% said because of poor leadership and management. The second reason, which is, let me look, I'm pulling up the data here real quick. Uh, the second reason, which was uh, about 35%, was lack of career opportunity or a career progression. So those, those were the two main reasons why people left, right? Not like why they would leave. Because that's the other interesting yeah. thing is in our community, we hear a lot of work-life balance is so important. And like, I, I won't go to a company that have work-life balance and I'm going to leave. A, that was like 11th on the list. Yeah. So, so while we talk about it a lot, uh, it doesn't look like it's actually leading for reasons why people actually have left. So it's more like a factual representation of, you know, what's actually going on. Um, it wasn't necessarily targeted at leaders or makers. And in fact, um, the initial part of the survey uh, we asked people to classify whether they're kind of, you know, freelancers, um, whether they're or part of a team, right? It's like, are you an independent consultant? Or are you part of a team? All right. Well, around, you know, 20% of the people were independent consultants. Right. All right. Well, if you're part of a team, are you the only designer or are you a designer as a part of a team? Turns out, you know, around 18 to 20% of the people who are part of a team or part of a work as, as part of a company are on their own. They're the only designer, <laughs> which is kind of scary, right? Like uh, basically one fifth of quote unquote design teams at companies, you're not really, you're a team of one. Mm. Right. Um, and so I looked at, you know, okay, again, uh, like kind of what's the structure and then, okay, now given the structure, um, you know, like what level are you at? Is there leadership presence or not? Uh, you know, is, is a career letter, you know, present or not that, yeah. that type of stuff. So it was kind of, yeah. it, it uh, was not again, just as at targeted at leaders individuals. It's more of like, Hey, if you're in the field of design, um, we want to hear from you. I want to know what's kind of going on. Uh, find out kind of where you sit, find out kind of like what's going on with your company. How is design organized? Um, you know, what kind of opportunities are there? Uh, that type of thing. Even down to like, you know, tenure, like, you know, how long were you in your last role? That type of thing. Yeah. Past tense stuff. Very important. Um, so that, uh, I mean, I, I have two questions now. I, I think one, I would just love to know what's on that list. <laughs> um, we should, we should run through. The, I mean, I have one particular question around um, uh, the ethics or the perceived ethics of the company that you work for or, or, or left or, um, you know, how important is that in reality versus how, you know, people like to, you know, signal a certain amount of, uh, that there are companies that fall in and out of favor and, you know, some companies with blue logos at the moment are, are questionable companies to work for. And you might not necessarily brag so much about putting them on your CV, but then they're paying 50% above market. So, you know, so I'm interested in whether your, your data is exposing any of that, you know, true sentiment towards where to work versus, um, 
you know, that the, the, the pride in the, um, the morals and scruples of the company that you work for does, is that kind of, uh, on the list anywhere? Um, so, so let me, let me just read through kind of the stack rake order of, um, and I can give percentages here. So let me flip over to this, um, you know, kind of the, the stack rake order of why did people leave? Um, and then we can kind of dig into, you know, maybe, maybe what that means. So, uh, this is something you'll probably have to do a little editing on because I gotta find this chart. <laughs> um, okay, all right. So again, so we um, kind of sparked by the, the the question from this. You know, it's it's, and I, I even use the statistic as well when I'm giving talks about this kind of career ladder stuff. You know, there's a Gallup poll that was done that says that you know 51 percent of employees are, are actively looking for work. Um, and, and while that's interesting, you know, I'm more of a, Hey, you know, that's theoretical. Let's get into what really happens. So as you said, kind of like, you know, past tense, right? Like what did happen, not like what could happen. <clears throat> yeah. So, um, so driven by that, um, and again, informed by a number of these interviews I had done, you know, we came up with a, with a, a list of reasons why you could leave. Um, people could choose more than one. Um, and, uh, and then I also had a free form input of like, you know, okay, well, if it's not on this list, you know, like what are some other reasons why you, why you left, right? So um, what's interesting is <clears throat> the top kind of um, five or six, um, in some cases, as I read through them, like, oh, yeah, that totally makes sense. Uh, there were a few kind of shockers. Uh, like I said, like, you know, work-life balance was something that, you know, we hear tossed around quite a bit. And so, honestly, uh, as part of my hypothesis for, like, you know, why people left, I had a pretty good idea what the top two would be. Um, I was expecting work-life balance, work balance to kind of be much higher than it was on the list, but it's, it's just not. <clears throat> so, um, you know, basically kind of going down through that list, um, you know, poor leadership and management was the first one, and that's around 47 48%, right, of, of why they left their last role, which kind of maps to um, some other data – out there again, the, the Gallup poll is 51% say that they're looking, uh, and and they attribute that to I'm looking because of poor leadership and management, right? Um, I think Adam Grant, you know, talks about how you know people don't leave a company, they you know they leave their bosses, right? So yeah, 47, 48% is around you know uh, left because of poor leadership management, 35% left because there was a lack of a career path, right? And what's interesting is when we ask this question around whether or not uh, your company has a career ladder. Um, the possible answers were no, not that I'm aware of, and yes. Um, and uh, there's actually quite a few people that answered not that I'm aware of, <laughs> which is kind of a scary answer, right? Because you're like, wait a minute, um, you know. So, and then you may talk to people in leadership with that company, like, oh, we totally have one. Well, you say you do, but if your staff isn't aware that it exists, then it basically doesn't exist, right? So, right. Um, so yeah, so 35% lack of career path, right? 31% uh, lack of meaning and purpose in their work. Now, in the design community, um, you know, I would expect that to be pretty high. I, I'm curious, because uh, we're going to repeat this study every year, um, and I'm hoping to kind of get other groups in, like maybe product engineering um, and, and kind of span outside of design. I'd be curious to know if that one holds up to being around, you know, a third of the people think that that's, that that's why they actually left. Again, that's one that, that people talk about a lot about having satisfying work. Um, you know, so that, that one, I'm kind of curious to see if, if that holds true. 28% said they stopped learning. Um, 
so, you know, you look at your top four and they really come down to, you know, uh, having a, a future at the company and good support, right? So, you know, leadership and management, 47%, lack of career path, 35%, meaning and purpose, 31%, 28% stop learning. Those are your top four. Mm-hmm. Next is uh, better payer opportunity, and that's only 18%. That's a good chunk, but it's, you know, you think about that that only being, you know, one out of five, that's a driver, and that's equal with hostile work environment. So both hostile work environment and better payer opportunity, 18%, that's why people left. Five out of the top six, they're, they're I mean, this may be in, in how the question was structured, but five out of the top six are being pushed out rather than being pulled into a new job. And I, Absolutely. I wonder whether there's there's the kind of the trigger point The oh, I'm leaving because a new job has turned up, but this has been something that I've been thinking about for a while versus I was perfectly happy. And then this new thing turns up, which is paying me whatever it is, 20 grand more. Um, and so I'm going to go for it. But um, I was happy in the previous job as well. Like it, that feels less likely to be true based on that data, but it's very much less likely. In fact, um, you know, based on the data and, you know, like one of the podcasts I listen to is uh, Dear HBR. You know, they talk about people who are having like, you know, challenging uh, work environments. And, uh, and and what you'll hear time and time again in a lot of the stories that come in um, is people are running from, not running to. Mm. Like that's the majority of the time is they're, they're running from a job. They're running from a situation. They're not actually running to. And in fact, in most cases, um, when someone gets an offer, from another company and you know uh basically it just comes down to like compensation being better uh more often than not what they'll recommend is hey if the compensation is a little better but you've got a great team and a supportive boss like don't leave that because that's really hard to find yeah right um that's that's i mean that's human nature as well right but we're kind of risk averse and and uh generally as people uh nervous about switching we we undervalue uh we undervalue the the value of of what is on the other side and and see what we have as kind of overly valuable and that that may or may not be true but it does make sense that people will be less likely to take a risk unless there is really something as you say to run away from yeah well and you know it's uh, it's uh you know as i coach clients there are certain um there are certain personality types that uh, are more likely just to kind of chase after, you know, the next new thing. And so I, with those clients I have to kind of watch out for, and, we, and you know, part of the discussion is, well, hold on, like, you know, are you just running to the next new thing because you're the type that's, you know, chasing after new and exciting adventures. Um, and if that's the case, let's just kind of back up and take stock of what's going on. And then we need to evaluate this new, this new exciting adventure you're chasing after. Um, mm-hmm. What are you leaving on the table? And is it worth it? And I can't tell you whether to go or to stay. That's not my role as a coach. My role as a coach is to kind of lay it out for you, help you like check for blind spots. And then you have to make the call, right? Then I've got another set of clients then there because there are other personality types that are definitely running from constantly, right. you know? Yeah. And in fact, I've got a client right now that, you know, uh, just got promoted into a really big significant role uh, recently. <clears throat> and looking at, you know, at their kind of uh, historical cycle, uh, this is like the fourth time it's happened in their career. And historically they've run from, and so this time around, right. like, hold on, 
let's just pause for a second. I can't tell you to run or to stay, right? But there's a, there's a trend here, right? What's been going on? Oh, I've, I've, historically, when this has happened, you know, my, my triggers get fired off and I've run from. And so with this person, what we decided to do is let's figure out how to not run from this one, but instead how to double down, dig in and learn so that, you know, we're kind of like going to elevate the, the leadership skills that we've got this time. Because there's an opportunity now to kind of really go beyond anything you've ever done before. Um, and so then mm. with them, that's, that's the work. But it, it is, uh, it can be very common, uh, especially in our field, right? I mean, honestly, like, you know, let's, you know, we have a very privileged field. There's no shortage of opportunities out there. And so mm. if somebody in our field wants to kind of run to the next thing, I mean, you can kind of, you know, close your eyes and toss up rock in any direction you're probably going to hit an opportunity yeah there's a whole bunch of directions we could go here but i um i quite like to split this this conversation i suppose into uh the opportunity or the what's interesting as when you're a leader of a, a team and thinking about you know what, what to do next and then uh sort of afterwards we can talk about as an individual uh, a maker or, or a team member um what to think about there but it it dawns on me as I listen to this that given you know five of the six of those the the reasons you list are running from and from from everything I've seen generally teams don't it's not a linear scale of teams losing losing people you know attrition isn't linear it's it's kind of it goes in fits and starts and there are there are kind of moments in a company or a team's life where one person leaves and then suddenly six people have left or, you know, 50 people have left. Uh, so, so I suppose, it, and some of those things are outside the control of anyone really, you know, if a, if a company is clearly failing or, or um, unable to pay staff for sure at the very worst, but, but there is something happening at a level higher or, or with the product or, or, you know, an acquisition or any, any of those kind of things are kind of out, outside maybe the, the leader's control, but for those things that are, and that still feels like a significant percentage, it's yours to lose, really. Like you, you um, All of this is within your control and uh, putting your head in the sand when a bunch of people leave and they're all leaving because they have quote-unquote better offers or there's an exciting opportunity, but they're all leaving at the same time. You've got a, you got a, I suppose, question is that really the reason or is there something happening? Has, has someone culturally important left and, and they've been kind of holding the, the team together or um, has there been a, a change here that, that we need to fix? Last year, you, you did an Envision talk and, and I know that this is part of the, the findings of the survey as well around the cost of losing someone, uh, both financially, I, I suppose financially is, is kind of scary. Um, so I, can you kind of elucidate on on those findings? Sure. Yeah. Let me uh, let me back up one second and kind of address uh, something that I, I heard in uh, as you were kind of thinking out loud, which was you know like things that you can control versus can't control. Um, and what is interesting is we, we actually do have data on that. Um, and so if you you think about things that you that you cannot control, right? Mm-hmm. Like the company shut down, or there was a reorg, or we were acquired. Those three represent 1% of the survey respondents for reasons why they left. 1%. Right. Single digit. Not just single digit, but like 1%. So 
So back to your, you know, kind of question around uh, if people are saying they're, you know, may, maybe it's beyond your control, right? Like there was an acquisition. That's 1% of the time that happens. So <clears throat> as a leader, if people are leaving your team, you probably should be looking at yourself really quickly and going, hold on a second. What am I doing or not doing as a leader? Because uh, I'm probably not doing, I'm not doing or not, uh, how do you put this? It's almost like one of my clients uh, phrases it as I'm not respecting the job, mm. right? And so as I go into this new opportunity, I want to respect the opportunities in front of me. And so I want to level up my leadership skills so that I'm doing right by the team. Mm. So if you've got people leaving on your team, um, regardless of what they say in the extra interview, you know, you really should kind of take a, a moment of introspection and say, hey, look, um, you know, I, I know they said that they're, reason, they're leaving because there's a better opportunity, but what, if anything, could I have done different as a leader? Now, maybe you couldn't save that one person. I mean, I've had that happen right. to me. You know, I, I had a, a case not long ago, well, I mean, it's been a couple of years ago, um, where someone on my team who was, you know, possibly a significant person on the team um, you know, left probably in my, uh, you know, fourth month of tenure. Um, and in hindsight, I was looking back and thinking like, you know, what, you know, what could I have, have done different? I, there probably could have been a few things. Um, the more I learned about this particular person, I also found out that a year and a half ago they threatened to leave. Um, and so in order to keep the person, they promoted this person, gave them more pay. That, is usually, you know, you, you got, you're sitting on a ticking time bomb. So if they've already decided they're going to leave, it's just a matter, it's really like, how long do you want to keep them around? Because uh, they're going to go at some point. <clears throat> so this person did leave. Uh, but knowing that a lot of people on the team knew this person, had a relationship with them, you know, the first thing that, that I did was kind of go on, you know, uh, not necessarily damage control, but it's like, you, you got to stop the, the artery from bleeding at that point, right? And so you got to double down and start going around all the team. And I had personal one-on-ones with every single person. And this is like, you know, the org is about 100 people at that point. So it was like, you know, three weeks of just nothing but one-on-ones. But it was really kind of checking with people and finding out, all right, you know, like, where are you at? How can I help support you? How can your managers help support you? Um, you know, what's the impact on you of this person leaving? For some people, it was not much. Others, it was like, well, it really has me questioning kind of like if they're leaving, like what's going on with the organization? And so you have to have those kind of really, yeah, I mean, yeah, they're hard conversations, yeah. right? But yeah, as you said, you can bury your head in the sand um, or you can kind of come at it and and uh, uh, almost attack it. And so for me, it's I've just found that kind of like naming it and addressing it head on is going to be, you know, more successful, right? So yeah. let's get on the cost. Um there's actually quite a bit of data on this. The actual cost of uh, leaving, you know, somebody leaving the team. Um, and you, you can put it into to numbers. I mean, there's some stuff that goes beyond numbers. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, it is a business. And so businesses like to look at, you know, a number in a spreadsheet. And so sometimes, you know, if you're talking to somebody who's, you know, uh, maybe one of your partners on the business level, that like the numbers is what kind of gets them. So if you look at somebody who um, is kind of, you know, entry to mid-level, um, you know, in, in, and not just design, but we're using design, uh, these numbers kind of transcend industry, but you know, within the design industry, you take say a, you know, a mid-level designer and maybe they're, you know, in, uh, in the States, depending on the, the, the state that you're in, you know, the city that you're in, you know, mid-level designer, 
they're making maybe 80 to 120,000 a year. Okay. If that person leaves U- US dollars, yeah. I just want to say US dollars. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and again, it's, you know, if, if you're like, if you're, you know, in certain pockets of the US, that number is, you know, like 80 grand, uh, you're out here in California. I mean, it could be 90 to $120,000, right? Uh, US mm. dollars. So, yeah, but if you take that number, say 80 to $120,000, a mid level designer, if they leave your company, essentially it's costing you around 51% of their salary. So, you know, John, if you're a mid-level designer and you work at my company and you walk out the door, that's going to cost me, you know, 40 to 60 grand. Mm. Um, a you know, kind of senior level designer to kind of, you know, frontline manager, uh, it's around 113% of their annual wow. salary. Okay. So you're looking at somebody who's maybe making, you know, in the 150 to $200,000 range, right? So let's say now that you're an entry-level manager, you walk out the door. You just cost me about $200,000. An executive, 213%. I don't know why the number is 213%. seems like an odd number, but like what they figured out is it's 213%. So, you know, in some cases out here in the Bay Area, you've got executives that are making like 500 grand a year, right? So, Johnny, you're making 500 grand a year. You walk out the door, you literally just cost me a million dollars. Now, where does that come from? Um, they look at a couple factors, right? And so what the data points to is, um, you know, there's immediate loss in productivity, obviously. You walk out the door, you know, kind of your work goes stagnant for a while. Somebody else has to go pick it up, right? Mm-hmm. So there's immediate loss of productivity. There is, um, you know, kind of just morale in the team, right? It's extremely rare that when one person leaves, and again, you go back to the, to the you know, Kubler Ross, uh, you know, change curve. <laughs> one mm-hmm. person leaves it's almost never one person. In fact, you have about a six week window where you need to start, you know, kind of like uh, doubling down and checking in with the team or else uh, one person turns into two or three or four or five people. Right. So there's a, there's a ripple effect. And so, you know, there's the immediate loss of productivity. There is the morale hit on the team. Like, well, why did, you know, why did Sarah leave? I don't know, but something must be going on. Right. And so, you know, people start talking and they start building up all kinds of stories in their heads right? There is uh, the impact of now we've got to go find somebody to replace them, possibly. And so there is the cost of, you know, somebody's got to write the job rec, you got to post it on the job boards, and you've got somebody from HR who's got to like, you know, curate the whole interview process, right? Then there's the cost of the team who has to interview, right? Then there's the cost of actually getting the person in the door. And then, depending on the size and scale of the company, there's the cost of the moment from when you actually walk in the door to when you go from basically a cost or an investment to actual producing value. That can range anywhere from like six weeks to six to nine months, depending on, you know, the company, the size, the complexity. And so if you're looking at, you know, the larger enterprise companies, it's generally expected that you're not going to produce any value at all for the company for, you know, three to nine months. And so you think, well, you're just in here collecting a paycheck and you are learning but you're not producing any value to the company, uh, you're a longer term investment. And so those numbers, again, like if you're kind of like, you know, mid-level and below, it's around, you know, around 50% of your salary. If you're kind of like, you know, senior to manager level, it's about a, a hundred and, you know, 25% give or take. Um, and then, you know, executive level, it's 213%. And so you can look at that and know that like, oh my gosh, you know, like if somebody leaves, uh, this is expensive uh, and it is expensive. Yeah, it's it's interesting though because it's 
it's kind of hard to quantify the expense and it's and often the expense isn't necessarily felt directly as an expense or and and you could argue i suppose whatever the monetary cost you know all of these companies are, are raising millions to for exactly this to to build teams but that loss of time and the loss of productivity and the the loss of uh, advantage within the market or whatever the you know is is also painful the loss of uh, ability of the team which then probably drives um you know the the ability to add more people to the team in the next in the next budget or, or whatever it is yeah which can be a full-time job when you talk to some leaders like when they're coming in and you know when you're going through like when these seasons are changed like oh i've got to hire you know five people this year or 12 people this year or 15 people this year um, and you talk to leaders that are doing that they'll tell you like i mean it's it's like my full-time job for the last you know two months like all i've been doing is hiring that's it and yeah. so Unfortunately, then you're not, you know, you're not like kind of uh, tending to and shepherding the staff that you've got. You're fully investing in trying to get new people in, but it comes at the cost of you right. leading the people you've got right now. And so, yeah, the, the cost yeah. is is real and significant. As you said, it's it's often not seen directly, you know, because it's like, well, if, you know, if, if you're my boss, you got other things to do, right? And so yeah. you're not seeing the impact that, that it's taking on me and my organization because, you know, you're kind of trying to take care of your organization and, and above. Yeah, I was talking to uh, Peter Merholtz about this and, and and his his talk around the different the different modes of leadership and you know up down across um, and realistically definitely if you're if you have lots of direct reports or there's a, there's a big organization uh, that that you're responsible for um, and you're within a big company as well each of those up down and across is kind of a full time job so if if full time you're trying to hire then that's kind of a it's almost a fourth a fourth part of the, you know you're removing all of those other things yeah um okay so really uh, interesting and kind of scary to put numbers to that so i think we've now made successfully made the point that um losing people is bad <laughs> uh and quite often really really bad <laughs> really, really really bad and uh if you're losing people Chances are, at least in part, it's your fault. <laughs> um, I would, I would, uh, I, I like to refer to it as shared responsibility. Okay, yes, no, that's much more politically correct. In in preparing for this, we we kind of talked about a few factors, and I've got I've got some stuff written down here. Um, some of which we've definitely talked about. So career development, um, but then there are other factors that kind of go into, uh, I suppose, a successful design organization. Um, and I've got organizational models, uh, an executive presence, uh, and uh, what you call maker levels, which it'd be really interesting to hear about these kind of factors as well and how you, th how you think that they kind of interact with the success of the team and influence it. Sure. Put it this way. The, the org model that's going to be most successful for you is going to depend on a number of factors. So uh, things that we look at, are like what season are you in you know you kind of like you know and you, you can think about it even in terms of like the you know storming forming norming performing you know yeah models right um so if you're you know if you're just kind of like storming well you know probably centralized is is fine because you haven't really built a practice yet you're trying to you're just trying to build the practice first right um, and then you kind of get to norming and kind of, you know, performing models. Well, at those points, like once you've kind of established some practice, 
you know, then maybe you can start to kind of go to more, you know, distributed hybrid, you know, uh, I think Peter calls mm -hmm. them, you know, Peter and, and um, Kristen call them centralized partnership models. Um, there is a, a natural trend that we see as far as the cycles that companies go through. Um, not all, not all of them kind of make it, uh, through the whole cycle, right? But there is a natural progression that companies will go through where they start out centralized because they're like, I, I got a team of like three or four or five, right? Mm. Um, so you might start out centralized and then as the company grows and you kind of go through these seasons where maybe like you've got a couple acquisitions and so now you've got, you know, kind of multiple product lines and, you know, so you, you, you know, kind of centralized creates a bottleneck. Well, then it's, it's not unusual. They kind of then go through the, you know, distributed teams where, okay, well now we just, you know, we, every team needs dedicated resources. Um, yeah. They'll tend to do that because then each of the product teams uh, kind of like the bottleneck goes away. And so they can kind of deliver stuff. Uh, but then <laughs> the cost of that is you end up with a really fragmented experience. You end up with like tons of tech and design debt. Um, and then some companies get to the maturity level where they realize, Oh, this is not working. Uh, we need to kind of um, not quite backtrack. I mean, and some, some might think of it as backtracking, but it's actually the next evolution, which is, you know, this kind of like hybrid model or some might call it like a centralized, decentralized or like a centralized partnership, uh, you know, model where essentially there's a blend of, you know, the organization kind of uh, reports into one group, but they function kind of embedded. Right. And so you get this nice blend of, okay, well, we have some common pillars of practice. We have some kind of common values. Uh, we do get the team back together to have common threads that bind us together. We've got check-ins. We can make sure that things like the date picker, uh, we've got, you know, kind of like a, a cohesive date picker model um, because surprisingly like date pickers, are like the things that you'll find a dozen of them in, in products. Yeah. It's, I don't yeah. know why. Right. But it's like, and, and what's interesting, especially you have these companies um, that, produce kind of a product suite, you know, like Salesforce, Workday, companies like that. Um, no company ever buys like just one product, right? You buy like four or five. Well, when you have a decentralized group, you've got four or five different versions of a date picker, but the customers, as far as they're concerned, like I'm just, I'm just trying to use like Workday or Salesforce. And then they incur like, you know, if I'm, if I'm trying to, um, you know, maybe, schedule an onboarding process for a new employee and I'm trying to book expenses and I got two different day pickers. Like, yeah, why, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's a small thing, but as you can, as you can imagine that kind of amplifies, right? So there's a natural evolution where companies tend to go from like centralized to decentralized to, uh, and a lot of them just stop there. Mm. The ones who do mature and get healthier and kind of grow and, and that we would think of as, um, you know, having more mature design organizations, they tend to then go to the next step, which is kind of like a hybrid model or kind of like a, you know, decentralized, centralized combo or, um, you know, the, the partnership model that, uh, that Merholtz and, and Skinner talk about. Um, there are some, what is interesting is um, how that breaks down, right? So industry averages, um, and this is going to be a little different. Again, like the Envision report that just came out, so I think that around, um, you know, half the teams use uh, centralized. That's not what our data says. Uh, but again, that, that could be, you know, the data that they've got is Envision customers. So it's quite possible that maybe they're, you know, larger or it's a, it's a mm. slightly different mix. Um, what we're finding is that a, a, about a fourth of the industry is centralized. Mm. About a fourth 
is decentralized. And so then about half is actually this hybrid model. Um, and we found two different hybrid models. So one hybrid model is kind of like the, you know, the uh, decentralized partnership, you know, model where there's, you know, several orgs that function embedded, but they all report up into kind of like one centralized uh, leadership group, mm-hmm. right? The other model is actually a mix of that with just fully distributed teams. Mm. The second version of hybrid you'll find at companies like, you know, Workday, Twitter, Google, Facebook, um, where they've acquired groups. And so what happens is you have kind of like this main team that, you know, is part of the, the primary organization, but due to an acquisition and we're, we're just trying to spend like the next year or two getting them kind of in, it's like, well, but then there's this team over here that's kind of like, you know, kind of running on their own. Um, and, and that can kind of create some challenges, right? But as a leader, your, your goal should be if I, you know, we can let them operate independent, but I should still involve them in my leadership meetings. I should still invite them to like our, you know, our annual kind of like, you know, uh, design week, you know, like they, they should feel like they're part of the larger organization, even if they're operating independently, they don't have to report to me, but we should keep that line of communication open. Right. Um, and then, yeah, depending on industry, I'm, I'm sorry, the size of organization, um, what we do see is the larger organizations, um, they have a higher percentage of the hybrid models, right? And so, you know, the, the splits stay fairly close to the industry um, until you hit, you know, like around 50-person orgs. And once you kind of go 100-person orgs and above, there's a massive shift that happens. So, like, at 100-plus personal organizations, less than 10% are centralized, around a fifth. So, about 20% are decentralized, and like 70% are hybrid models. And so right. you can think of these as like, you know, Facebooks and Googles. And this is, you know, this is public information. You can go and look like, oh, like Facebook has like, you know, three VPs of, you know, product design. And Google has like multiple VPs of, of product design with each with their own organization. And that just has like at that scale, you know, you, it's, it's really difficult to effectively run a 4,000 person design organization with like, you know, one executive design leader like that yeah. that just doesn't really work right and so they have I mean, they have multiples it feels like this is the organizational equivalent of it's complicated right i mean there's yeah you start to get to the scales and the the shapes of organization where there isn't really an answer i mean there there is a uh, i'd call it almost like a recipe to look for right um and and the two big factors that we see that have an impact on the shifts are size and geographic dispersion so when you have companies that have, you know, oh, we've got designers scattered around the globe, centralized doesn't really work. In fact, centralized is like the worst thing ever because it's, you know, it's three days to get a screen back from, you know, somebody over on the other continent. And so you have to either go to like decentralized or, or hybrid. And so it's, it's both that kind of like size of the team and then geography. If I've got teams in multiple locations, then we're probably better off looking for, you know, uh, a decentralized or, or hybrid model. Now, the kicker is in order for that to be successful, you've got to have some other things in place, like a design system, some type of design operations model, uh, typically a playbook, right? Um, and some like center of excellence or a core practice that's, that's trying to create common pillars of practice across the organization. So if you don't have, if, if you go to 
the decentralized or kind of hybrid model and you don't have a design system, you don't have some type of like, you know, you're not operationalizing this, right? Which is like a design system, a playbook, some type of design education, the thing's going to fall apart. So it's that combination of, all right, we go to this model, which spreads out the goodness, but we have to have a common thread that binds it back together. And so it's parts of the practice, like, you know, regular critiques, design weeks, a playbook, a design system, something to kind of like the glue that binds it all together. Got you. Got you. Um, yeah. Well, so, I mean, I would imagine a lot of the people that, uh, that listen to this are not uh, in, in the position where they're having to worry about, you know, huge, great, big monster design organizations. You, you said that companies like Google, um, Google's 4,000 plus. IBM's over 2,000 now. So uh, even within your data, they're skewing it massively. Oh yeah, big. <laughs> uh, average team size, right? Uh, I think we're talking like average team size is around 12. That's after we've removed the outliers. Uh, in right. tech, if you just take tech as an example, you know, average, the average uh, design team at a tech company is around 12 people once we've removed the outliers. And it actually, it took quite a bit of work to kind of, there's, there's an algorithm you can run through. I had to, I had to do, do like three passes of the data to get it down to like, how do I remove the outliers? If I leave right. all the outliers in, it's 128 for tech teams. Like that's the yeah. size. So just to give you an idea of like the outliers are like extreme outliers, right? Where, you know, you look through the data set and there's a lot of teams that are, you know, 25 and under, right? Uh, a few that kind of hit the 50 to 100 threshold, uh, a number of teams that are like in the 100 plus, And then there's literally like a handful of teams that are over a thousand. Um, yeah. But, but their numbers are, you know, um, the largest team we saw was, uh, you know, some team from India. 5,000 designers at the company. Uh, I think it's one of these larger consulting companies. Um, and so, yeah, you, you, you throw that in, you got a bunch of teams that are team of one, and then you got, you know, yeah. a team of 5,000, all of a sudden, like, the numbers get highly skewed. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So, I suppose to, to close out this this part of the conversation uh, on, on something that will be a question that will hopefully be actionable for people listening who are in teams of one all the way through to maybe not 4,000 or, or 5,000, but, but, you know, a, a couple of hundred going back to uh, career ladders and, and competency and, and, and helping, helping people to, to grow. What are you seeing in terms of when companies start to adopt that? When's the right time to do it? You're, you're stopping short of, of kind of getting to action so far, but um yeah, no, I'd be really interested to know both what you're seeing in terms of real life, but also uh, what you would do that might be different to that. Sure. So um, let's talk uh, career ladders first, right? Uh, and they, they kind of, um, we found like three different versions. Uh, there's one that we call the pay band scale, right? Which is just, it's literally like a title and a dollar amount next to it. Um <clears throat> The interesting thing is that um, the just look at the data real quick. Only one third, well, less than a third. So twenty nine percent of companies have a career ladder at all. Only twenty nine percent, which means that seventy one percent don't have any form of career ladder. It's more of like an informal conversation. It's locked away in somebody's head. Mm-hmm. You know, so you, Johnny, uh, like you're my manager, and uh, I want to know like what my future is. Uh, you know, you're like, oh, well, you're a mid-level designer. Like your next step is a senior. Okay. How do we get there? Ah, we have to think about that. 
I mean, and all I know is like there's a title and maybe there's some pay, but I have no indication of what it looks like. Um, you don't even really have an indication because we don't have any type of formalized career like because we're in the 71%, right? Now, if you go to the 29% um, and I come to you and ask that question, uh, we fall into three brackets, right? One is what's called a pay band scale. Uh, and your answer to me, uh, if, if we're in the pay band scale bracket is, oh, well, your next level is, you know, um, you know, you're, you're kind of like a mid-level designer. You're making like 80K, right, a year because we live in the Bay Area. Uh, and uh, so it's skewed. Um, and, and your next step is you'll go to senior and that's 110,000. Right. Right. So that's all you know is, again, it's a title. But, but at least I, I have a, I, now I actually have a dollar figure I can put next to it. Right. Um, that's, again, about 29% of the companies uh, total have a career ladder. That the, the, the group that has that bracket of pay band scale of the 29%, that is um, about, I think it's like 97% or so of the 29% are pay band scales. Right. So not very many people actually have something you can measure against, right? Um, those companies tend to have it because HR says they have to. Now, the other two are what we call a competency model and something that's like measurable. It's like a scorecard mo scorecard model. So the, the second group, which is a competency-based model, um, which you'll find at the more mature companies, right? Is, oh, well, it's, it's uh, your next step, Johnny, is a senior designer. And it looks like this, right? Like there's some craft skills and here's how we measure those, right? They look like this. Uh, there is some kind of like communication collaboration skills. And so it's, it's, it's basically a skill set. Right. And so you break down what does it mean to be a, a senior designer into a group of skills. And then there's some descriptions behind those. Right. Um, it's still a little subjective as far as whether or not you actually hit the mark on that. But at least there's like a list of skills and some descriptions. Right. And that's the the um, the bulk of companies that have uh, a more mature model. It's still a very, very small percentage of companies that have that. Um, and then literally a handful of companies have more of like a scorecard model, right? Which is, well, um, it's communication and communication is five levels of communication, right? Right now you're at level three on communication and here's how we assess that. Uh, your goal and so your growth path that you and I will work on, your development plan, is to get you to, to communication level four. And it looks like this. Those, um, to what we could find, there are basically five companies that have those. Uh, three of them I've worked on. <laughs> so they're, they're not common, um, but they're incredibly, incredibly helpful, right? So uh, just from an industry standpoint, again, only 29% have any type of career ladder. Of those career ladders across the industry, 97% of the 29% are pay band scales, which basically is a half a percent, right? right. Uh, I'm sorry, um, is... is, is um, basically it leaves it ha only only half a percent of the companies out there have a competency model and like, you know, less than it's and about a quarter of a percent of the companies that we surveyed have a, a scorecard model. Now when they show up, that's kind of interesting. Um, this goes back to your question of like when they, you know, when they show up versus when they should in general, um, most of the companies that are under 50 people only have a pay band scale. So basically, like we're not really seeing a competency-based career ladder, career career ladder um, present at a company until they're over fifty people. 
Now, when should it show up? 50 people in the company or in the, the design? No, just in the design work. No, no, not, not in the company. You know, so, so basically, uh, there, are a few, there are a few exceptions, but, in, but, you know, for the most part, if you just look at the data set, right, um, when, when does a competency-based career ladder show up? You know, not until you hit 50 people in the design organization which is a pretty good size design org. Like you talk to people um, that, that sit in a 50% design org and most, most people in the industry would consider that a large team. Like well, that, yeah. that's, a, that's a big design org, right? Yeah. Um, and so it's not until they're hitting 50 that they're typically putting in place some type of a competency-based career ladder. Um, and that's still a small amount, right? It's um, so from, from 50 to uh, once, once an organization, a design org hits 50 people, about 45% of them have any kind of career ladder. Mm-hmm. Um, of that 45%, 86% of that 45% is still pay bands only. Yeah. And so essentially, once you hit 50 people and up, you know, 26% have a, have a career ladder and only 14% of that 26% Uh, 45, only, only 14% of the 45% have a competency based model. Right. So basically you're, you're talking like, you're talking like seven or eight percent of the companies have a competency based model. The rest of them like don't have something that's worth measuring. So I suppose this is the million dollar question is those companies that, you know, which is the vast majority of design teams in the world that are under 50 should and I, and I I really don't want to make this sound like I'm just trying to plug <laughs> <laughs> <Like> a product, plug <laughs> my product, but because I really I, I'm I'm genuinely interested in and and happy to hear that actually it's not important until a certain a certain time, um, but but I think that there's it feels like there's 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 a point up until which you can do it through you know, good one-to-ones and management and all that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. There's a, um, is, so this doesn't come through uh, quant data. This comes through, you know, qual data. So, you know, the, the, the clients I'm coaching, um, you know, they range in size from teams of, uh, you know, under 15 to, you know, orgs that are over 150 and over 250, right? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously the ones that are on the higher end, they're like, 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 I don't know how we would survive without some type of career progression. Right. Cause you know, people are going to leave left and right. Um, the conver- basically the, 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 the conversation that comes up is you can kind of get by, um, without a formalized documented ladder, you know, until the team's like around 15, like that's kind of like the window. Right up until about fifteen, um, it's usually well. Let me put it this way: fifteen and, and likely co-located. Okay, now if it's like I've got eight here and two over there and like six over there, like that's a different story because once your team starts to get distributed, um, it's a little more difficult to uh, lead them properly, and that's a whole other layer, right? So if uh, if you've got a co-located team that's, you know, between like, you know, say eight to 15 people, that size is still manageable enough where you've probably got, hopefully, hopefully you've got like, you know, maybe one or two lieutenants that, you know, are helping you manage the team. Right. right. And you can kind of have, um, you know, it's, it's more of like an informal career ladder. Like, okay, well like, yeah, we have kind of like a list of, of uh, levels with some attributes 
Um, <clears throat> and that's kind of what it looks like, right? Uh, when should you? Well, you know, what we're seeing is when you hit like that 15 person mark and above, that's when you at a minimum should have a competency-based model, right? Where it's like, okay, well, here's, you know, maybe five to 12 skill sets. Uh, they kind of break down into these four or five buckets of groups and some descriptions, right? And, and of the career ladders out there, those are the most common. Uh, the benefit is they help facilitate the conversation. Uh, they set expectations. So, you know, there, there's fewer surprises at the performance review. Uh, downsides, they're still a bit subjective, especially when you have multiple leaders, right? Because your interpretation of, you know, somebody hitting that level and mine's going to be different because there's no scorecard, right? There's no, like, we, we don't have a, um, a measurable rubric that's like, no, th this is what a, you know, what a mid-level designer looks like. And so we can compare two people on two different continents from two different teams under two different leaders, right? So that's the greatest challenge. Um, the, the, the companies that have a rubric where they can kind of assess a level based on a scale of like one to five or whatever, um, let's put it this way. There's uh, two different stories to share real quick. One of the companies I helped them develop it, they were working on a competency-based model. Uh, it was based off of a data set from, um, I don't want to use the company's name, but it's a data set that's really, uh, it's mostly like survey, uh, I'm sorry, a salary survey-based data set. Uh, and so it, it, it's not at all useful to people in product and design. And in fact, a couple of companies I've worked with uh, to build their ladders, they've had that data, they've tried to shoehorn their stuff into it by working with HR and they basically had to just toss it out, right? And the company paid like lots of money for this data set. <laughs> um, those, in, in uh, one company I was working with, they had been working off of that model for three weeks and uh, none of the directors were able to assess their team. We put together a scorecard model for them, like a, a rough draft sketch. No joke, the person I was working with sent it to one of her directors who's in Australia. 20 minutes later, she got an email back from him that said, holy crap, I was able to do my entire team of 15 in like the last 20 minutes using this scorecard model that I wasn't able to do for the last three weeks with just a straight competency model. Right. Um, another story with a, a, a company I was working with, uh, we helped develop theirs was based on a scorecard and uh, we rolled the thing out. Leadership team got, to, got back together and uh, we were asked, doing kind of like a retro on the rollout. Right. And uh, one of the directors, uh, the, the, the story they had shared was, you know, Hey, how did your, you know, kind of one-on-one, you know, performance conversations go. And the director was like, um, they were like 10 or 12 minutes each. They were so straightforward because we laid it out. You know, the person kind of assessed where they were based on the scorecard. I assessed where they were based on the scorecard. There was a little Delta. We talked about the Delta. It was pretty straightforward. They knew where they were going. They knew what was required. And like, that was it. I've like, you know, I've been at this company for six years. I've never had one-on-one -on -one performance conversations that were this quick, this effective, this direct. And with like, you know, such little gray area you know, right. it's, it's been huge. Right. So they do take quite a while to, to build, but the, you know, the, the net value in the end is, you know, it's easily 10 X. That's what I want to hear. Thanks. <laughs> hey, that's, um, that's just what the data says. <laughs> it's kind of, not plugging a product, just purely like, you know, based no, on, a, you know, story. <laughs> and, you know, data share, so there's a, an interest in, but not a deep, uh, pain being felt before a certain point, uh, before a certain team size, uh, and then and then that and as with all of these things, 
it's it's fine until it's not and then suddenly it kind of flips and and um and that maybe that's a point at which a few people have left or you know there's a there's a trigger for that and someone goes there generally needs to be um a significant event so uh the several companies that i've worked with uh i'll just give you you know one quick story uh no joke, one of them came to me and said, we're coming off the back of a 20% attrition rate of our design team. We need to do something. <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, it's yeah. usually, un unfortunately, it hasn't been until they're behind the eight ball. At that point, you've got to go do a bunch of recovery work first, right? Like I call them yeah. recon missions. It's like literally, I got to go out and like basically do a lot of reconnaissance, a lot of recovery work, you know, build up a bunch of trust. Um, and so I've got to like, you know, you got to, you got to rebuild the foundation of the house first. Um, mm -hmm. Again, like if you look at the Cooper Ross, you know, change model, you, you know, this is coming. It was completely preventable. Yeah. Just other priorities typically got in the way um, or it's like, well, yeah, it's kind of painful, but you know, like I still have my arm attached. So until I have to cut my arm off, like I'm not going to change anything. Right. Well, then, yeah. then you cut both arms off. And you're like, Hmm, I probably should have done something. Yeah, you should have. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so um, right now where it's at is a lot of companies are coming like behind the eight ball. Yeah. Um, and my, my hope is that we can kind of, you know, uh, work more from a prevention model than a, you know, treatment model. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but you mentioned that you keep seeing these trends and, and you, you can kind of uh, predict what people will say. One thing that I found to be true is this is perpetually third on someone's to-do list. So it, they'll be aware that it's a thing that they should be doing and um, and it's just a little bit too hard or there's too much cognitive load and there's too many variables to turn it into a task. Um, so it becomes something that is, you know, mentally just a little bit too hard to tackle today. So they'll take something else on. And then, yeah, I mean, I was, then, you know, uh, I was a year and a half ago is uh, uh, sitting with a, a leader here in the Bay area, having coffee, talking about, you know, career ladder development frameworks. And, uh, and, and they said, oh, yeah, man, we've, we've, you know, uh, it's on my priority list. Okay. How long have you been working on it? I've been working for like 18 months. Like, <laughs> really? Yeah. How far have you got? Not very far. Like other, you know, other things just keep getting in the way. You know, like HR breathing down my neck. Like I know we've been from it. He's like, you know, um, I didn't realize, you know, like it's, you know, one, that can be a lot of work Two, It's just like other priorities keep getting in the way. Um, mm. You know, you, you have to treat it like a product. It has to actually get a timeline. It's got to have a schedule. It's got to have due dates. You got to have check-ins. You got to roll it out. You got to basically do some iterations um, if you don't do that, it's, you know, th then we put it this way. If you haven't done that and you sit down and talk to me about it, I can predict where the conversation is going to go because what you will tell me is, Oh yeah, we've kind of been working on it. Like we started six months ago and we kind of got some headway, blah, blah, blah. We don't have executive support, you know, but it's not done yet. Right. Uh, yeah. It's going to be anywhere from six months to 18 months. You still haven't rolled it out yet. Right. And I will guarantee you that the only thing you've made any traction on is the IC maker version one. You've done nothing on the leadership level. Absolutely yeah. nothing. I can write this down on a three by five card, take bets, right? <laughs> you want to have a conversation, flip it over. And I'm like, I went to Vegas and I like, you know, yeah, I hit the yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's the same conversation every time, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, awesome. So when can we expect your, the report to, to appear and, and uh, is this going to be something that everyone can get their hands on? 
Yeah, there's um, probably, so I'm, I'm heading to Leading Design uh, in New York City uh, towards the end of this month um, and, and giving a, an updated version of the, the talk on, you know, kind of career ladder uh, progression stuff that I gave uh, in London. Um, and so the goal is that I, I have it packaged up by then. So, you know, by the end of, of June. Um, and I want to release a version of it probably, uh, I don't know the length yet. It's, it's looking like it's probably gonna be like around 20 or 30 pages long, but it'll be one that's, you know, open to the public. Um, yeah. you know, it, it's funny. I, I, I never really, uh, intended to kind of push this thing out and make a, you know, make a thing of it. It was just more of like, I was curious. I want to see what was going on. Uh, and then once I got the data set, I was like, wow, there's some really interesting stuff in here. And like, yeah. you know, I bet people would kind of be interested in, in seeing what's in it. Uh, so that, and kind of, you know, piggybacking on, you know, we've, we've had a number of, uh, you know, kind of industry reports that have come out, um, you know, in the last couple of years, I think it'd be good for that. So. Awesome. Uh, well, I, I, for one, can't wait to see it. Uh, and good luck in New York. Thank you. So, uh, I, I, we've, we've really gone deep on that. So we'll, we'll leave it there for now, but where can people find you? Um, yeah, I've got a website up, zackywarfel.com. Uh, it talks about my coaching business and, uh, you know, this, the, there'll be a link to the report, you know, at the site. Um, that's probably like the best place to, to find me. Awesome. I'll put, I'll put this stuff in the show notes as well. So everyone can, uh, find it there. Todd, thank you very much for your time. Johnny, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for, uh, reaching out. Always great chatting with you, man. And, uh, we'll talk <laughs> soon. All right. Okay. Cheers. All right. Cheers.